So what's next? It's a question that we ask when we feel uncertain about something. What's next economically? We ask that for the sake of security, because we want to feel secure in our financial decisions or positions. What's next politically? We ask that for the sake of our sanity, because we see things that seem so out of control, we're hoping that there would be some control, and so we ask the question, what's next out of our uncertainty? What's next biblically? We ask that question for the sake of strategy, so that we can know the days that we're living in and what's to come, and then we might be able to make decisions and order our steps in a way that we are the most effective uh, in this world during our time. Now, what's next economically? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not an economist. I have some ideas, but I don't know. What's next politically? I'm not a politician, so I don't know what's next politically, what's coming down the pike. I have to say I'm very skeptical at best. But what's next biblically? Well, that I do know. I'm a pastor, and my job is to study the scriptures, to study the Bible, and to know what God has said. And, and, and so because of that, I can say with assurance, I do know what's next, what's coming up next, and it's what we want to look at tonight. However, in order for us to understand what's coming up next, it's necessary that we possess a framework of what has been and where we currently are. And so thus tonight, here's our outline for our study. And if you're taking notes, it's going to be on these three segments Divided in threes, if you would. Number one is a framework. That is what has been. And then part two will be homework, which is connecting the dots between the past and the present. And then part three is homework. And that is looking into the future and how it affects our lives is the most important part of the thing. So framework, homework, and footwork. And if we have the framework and we do our homework so that we understand all things but we don't have footwork, then we've failed completely. We've wasted our time. So the most important part of this is really the end, where we look at why it matters to us. But we begin with our framework, and that is connecting the past to the present. There are a group of, I'll call them deists. And those are people that believe in God. They believe that there's a God, but that he more or less set the world in motion but then he removed himself from the scene. And that we're in one giant cosmic experiment where God doesn't really know the outcome. He started it off and he's just watching and waiting to see what will be, what will happen. And that's their concept, their idea. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God knows exactly what's going to happen in the end and he knew that at the very beginning when he started things off. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, God speaks through him by the Spirit and he says this. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand And I will do all my pleasure. God claims that he has the ability, the power to see into the future. 
in a world that's filled with moral free agency where we make choices and govern our own destiny, but yet God can see through all of that and he can see what will be at the end and how things will unfold in the last days, even from the very first days. In the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 18, it's summed up in one sentence this way. It says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. That is, God has known from the beginning how all things will unfold even at the end. And here's the point, the bottom line, is that this world is on a course. There's an agenda and a destination that's known of God and it's revealed unto us. But there's a wild card in all of that. Because although it's God's program and God's power and God's knowledge and God's will that we know it, there's also an enemy. There's a prince. He's called the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. Three times Jesus himself said that he's the prince of this world or the God of this world. Once Paul called him the prince of the power of the air. He was referring to none other than Satan. And Jesus ascribed to him a control, a handle, a hold that he has over this world, that Satan is the one who's governing and directing the direction that this world is going. And he's been given that authority. You say, how does Satan have authority over what's happening on earth? Well, the Bible teaches that when God formed Adam in the beginning, it says God set him over the works of his hands. God delivered the world into Adam's control. He said, subdue it, have dominion over it. But when Adam yielded to the temptation of Satan, he also yielded dominion and control over this world. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says, To whomsoever you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are, whom you yield yourselves to obey. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. They yielded themselves as servants to Satan. And they brought that dominion upon themselves and upon every one of us. And so much so is Satan the one who controls the affairs of men on planet earth today that even Jesus, when he was confronted by Satan in his temptation, Satan said to Jesus, if you simply bow down and worship me, I will give you all of the world for it has been given to me and I can give it to whomsoever I will. Now Jesus did come to take back that dominion, but he wasn't going to do it by bowing down. He was going to do it by hanging on a cross. He defeated death, broke the curse, and broke Satan's dominion through his work on Calvary, his redemptive work. But this world is still held by that prince. And listen, that prince has a plan. He has an agenda. He's taking this planet down a path, and there's no stopping it. Now, that doesn't mean it's outside of God's control. It doesn't mean that he's trumped God's authority. God's one-upped him. God knows exactly where things are going. And when Satan gets where he's going, God will be there waiting for him. That's the good news. But what is his plan? Where are these things headed? Satan's plan is this. This is his objective and where things are going. He wants to unify the world in rebellion and hatred for God. He wants to unify the world in allegiance and in obedience to himself. And he wants to snuff out every shred of God's influence, presence, and image from this planet absolutely and completely. 
And here's his method, the way he's going to try to do that. He's going to bring in one world government that he will preside over through a puppet man. There'll be one world ruler who gets his power directly from Satan. We know him as the Antichrist, but the world will know him as the Christ, the Savior. He'll do it through one world financial system, which is essential for one world government. It's been well said by those who control world finances that whoever controls the money controls the world. He'll do it through one world religion, a false religion that will be acceptable, believable, and functional to all. And he'll do it through one world mindset because unity is absolutely essential in it. Now, in order to achieve it, he must remove or all opposition must be removed one way or another. Now, how do we know that this is Satan's plan? Here's how we know. Because he's tried it before. The first attempt happened shortly after creation itself. It was Genesis chapter 11. It was through an empowered, satanically empowered man named Nimrod. And he unified the world population on the plains of Shinar. God's word was spread out and multiply. His word is rebel against that. Come together and let us build a tower that will reach unto the heavens. We don't need God to come down to us. We'll reach heaven by ourselves. And he unified the world. It says that they were of one language, one speech, and one purpose. And they began to build the tower. And God himself, observing that work, said, Now nothing will be impossible to them, seeing that the people is one, unified in rebellion against God. But it wasn't God's time. So God confounded their languages. He put the kibosh on that plan. And things went onward. God's plan prevailed and continued. But Satan's desire didn't stop. He would try again several centuries later through another despotic king named Nebuchadnezzar in the days of Daniel the prophet. And again, in Shinar, in Babylon, that same area, God had spoken to Nebuchadnezzar saying, this is going to be the succession of world empires, a head of gold, a chest of silver, a belly of brass, legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay, ten toes. This is the succession. Nebuchadnezzar said, no, it's not. And he built a statue, all of gold, from head to toe. And he said, this will be the final world empire. And When you read Daniel's testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's image when the boys were thrown into the fire, the parallels are perfect. An image that the world was commanded to worship, unified there. But there was a wrench in the system. There were three boys that wouldn't bow down. They ruined the whole program. They threw the whole thing off. By the way, that's the reason for anti-Semitism. That's the reason why there's a spirit in this world of hatred towards the Jews. It's satanically inspired because they have always been an obstacle to God's plan. But he tried it under Nebuchadnezzar and it didn't work. And he's tried it many different times throughout the ages. But we know ultimately where it's going because the Bible tells us perfectly. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the psalmist declares and says it this way. He says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, God says, Hey, This has been the direction from the beginning that through the avenue of world government, Satan will seek to unify the world in rebellion against God. One government, one currency, one religion, not God's religion. What's God's response to it? I love verse 2. Verse 3, rather. Verse 4, rather. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
The Lord shall hold them in derision. I love that word. I looked it up because I didn't know what it means. You know what derision means? It means to speak unintelligibly. In other words, the same thing that God did at the Tower of Babel by confusing their speech, He will do to their spirit of unity that they have as they seek to culminate. But the point of all of that, sharing all of that with you, is simply to lay the framework of saying, we know where things are going because the Bible has told us in advance. So understand that when you see things going on in the world, economically, politically, morally, this is where the world's heading. God is right 100% of the time. And we see in our day the things for this system coming together like at no other time in human history. But, now, in the midst of all of that, where do we put our attention? Because right now, the world is like a 60-ring circus. You know how you go to the circus and there's something going on on the left and something in the middle and something on the right, and you never know where to look at because you don't want to miss anything. And there's so much happening and so many different things that are, 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 are significant but don't make sense. It causes us to ask the question, well, where do we fix our eyes? What do we look at in the midst of something where everything seems meaningful but nothing makes sense? And so that's where we begin now to do part two of our study, and that is our homework. We know where things are going, but how do we connect the present to the future, the things that are today to the things that are coming, or to say it another way, where do we stand today in relation to what is yet to come? And so for that, I've asked you to turn to Matthew chapter 24, which I believe is probably the most significant, most interesting, and most fascinating portion of Scripture as it relates to the things that are yet coming on the planet Earth and how they relate to the days that we are living in right now. In verse 1, and I'm just going to read the first three verses to lay down some context. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now here's the background, the context wherein this is taking place. Jesus and his disciples have just come out of the temple. They were there, and in an unsuspecting moment, Jesus went berserk. He began overturning tables. He began whipping the people that were there changing money and selling sacrifices at exchange rates that were ripping off the people that were coming to worship God. And he basically went on a tirade against the rulers of the Jews there, calling them lazy, despotic, self-serving, self-inflated, hypocritical, foolish, murderous, blinded sons of hell. And you can read Matthew chapter 23 and check me on that. That's exactly what Jesus said to them that were there. And then he leaves the temple mount with his disciples and they're walking around the outskirts of it. And it's almost like you get the idea that the, the disciples are a little bit stumbled by what Jesus has just done. They're there and they, they see Jesus. Maybe he's a little bit hot. Maybe there's a vein in his head. Hey, that was the only thing that ever angered Jesus 
was when religious people kept common people from coming to God. And he was angry. And they said to him, hey, you know, Lord, we're, we're trying to accomplish something here. And you're not going to get very far calling them those names and making that kind of a scene. This is counterproductive to our cause. And they're like, you know, you need to ease off just a little bit on this. And so they show him the buildings of the temple. They say, look, Lord, th- there's some history here. It's not all bad. I mean, you know what this place is. This is the temple. This is where we come. It's, I mean, Moses, the law, Solomon, you know, the, the, the captivity, the return. Lord, this isn't all that bad. And they were thinking, no doubt, that they were going to calm Jesus down just a little bit. But Jesus doesn't calm down and concede to that. Rather, he digs in just a little bit deeper. He looks at those guys and he says something so astonishing. He says, you guys see these stones? You're impressed quarried out, 16 tons each, fit together so well you can't put a knife blade between them. He says, I'll tell you something. There's not one stone that's here building this structure that will not be thrown down. Every single bit of it will be cast down. And so astonished were the disciples that what Jesus said that moment that it caused them to quietly consider, take Jesus aside privately and ask this question. They said, Lord, tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How is it all going to come down? That was the question. I don't think the question can get any clearer than that. What they were asking, what they were hoping. And fortunately, Jesus not only gave an answer, but Matthew recorded it for us in the scripture so that we can know exactly what Jesus said. Now, I'm going to give to you right now the key to unlock and understand Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 is a three-point sermon. Jesus answers their question, but he answers it from three different viewpoints. And here's why. Because depending on who you are, the end-time scenario is going to look different. It doesn't look the same for everyone. And so depending on where you are in relationship to God, the whole scenario, the whole scene is going to unfold differently. Here's what I mean by that. Point number one that Jesus makes as he answers this question is the end times as it relates to the nations. It's very generic. It's very broad. It's very inclusive. It's the first verses. It's verses 4 through 14. That whole chunk all the way down through 14. It's all end times events as it relates to the nations of the world generically. And so you look through that and you figure out very quickly that these are generic terms. He's talking about things that affect a worldwide spectrum. Wars and rumors of wars. Famines and pestilences in diverse places. Earthquakes and geological signs. All of these things are things that affect the nations in their totality. So we know who he's talking to. And then he says, here's what's going to happen. And then he brings it to an end at the end of verse 14. He says, and then the end will come. And that closes the first point of Jesus' sermon. Then he gets into the second point, and that is this. The end times as it relates to the Jews, or to Israel uh, singularly. And so you look at that text, verses um, 15 all the way down through verse 31, and, and what do you see? He references the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. That's clearly a reference to someone who's familiar with and knows the Hebrew scriptures. He talks about the holy place. He talks about Judea, the Sabbath, 
crossing the Jordan River in winter, which would be a problem for them. He talks about the Antichrist, the tribulation, and several prophecies from the Old Testament that are distinctly pointing towards Israel. And it's very clear as you read through those verses that he's talking to the Jews. And then he brings it to the end in verse 31 as he wraps up, you know, how it's going to look for them, what's going to happen to them. They're going to go through the tribulation, which if you don't know what that is, don't worry, we'll come back to it in a moment. They're going to go through all of that, and, and, and their end comes at the end of that tribulation time. And so it's the end times as it relates to Israel. Then he gets to point number three, and that is from verse 32 all the way to chapter 25, uh, verse 30. So it's a long third point, and a lot of preachers do that. You know, you think, okay, we're getting towards the end, and, and then it just keeps going and, and going and, and going. And, and, and Jesus does that. What's the third point? Point three is this. It's the end times as it relates to the church. Because it will be the church that will need the most information, and thankfully he provides it for us. And so it becomes clear as you read through those verses that Jesus is talking to the church. He compares those he's speaking to to ten virgins that are waiting their bridegroom to come back. It's a clear reference to the church. He talks about a steward who leaves talents, gifts with his servants, and they are to occupy and be productive while he's away, and he's going to be returning for them so that they can give an account. It's a clear reference to the church who he's speaking to. And so in verses 32, all the way to that point in chapter 25, he's giving the end times as it relates now to the church. Now, since we are the church, and our objective is to figure out what it is that we're seeking to understand and where we're at, that's the portion of this chapter that we want to examine, understand, and look at. Now, we're not going to do the ten virgins. We're not going to do the the talents. We're going to do from verse 32 to 42, and we're going to just look at what Jesus said the end times would look like for the church. And so flip over to verse 32, and let's take a look at what Jesus says to you and I concerning the last days, the days that we live in. He says this, He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. It would point right back to the initial question, which was, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so he begins with this parable of a fig tree. When you see the leaves, when you see a tender branch, you know it's the time for figs. So also, when you see these things, these signs coming to pass, you'll know that it is near, even at the doors, right there. Verse 34, assuredly, I say to you, this is one of the most incredible verses in the whole Bible, in my opinion, for us. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. We'll come back to it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But, he says, now mark this, highlight it, understand it, memorize it, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But, here's a clue. But uh, uh, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood... 
They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, life as usual. Marrying, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, all normal things, nothing wrong with any of it. But at unsuspecting time, an unsuspecting season, it happens. And then he says, here's what's going to happen. This is what it's going to look like for the church. What does the end times look like for the church? Verse 40. It says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And so he said, this is what the end time scenario is going to look like for the church. You're going to see the signs. You're going to be caught off guard. And then you're going to be taken. One will be taken and the other one will be left. The answer to what's going to happen is one word we use in the church. Perhaps you've heard it. It's the word rapture. It's when the people of God are taken from this earth and brought to be with the Lord in heaven, transformed in a moment, given new bodies, and forever brought into the presence of the Lord. What is the rapture? The Bible teaches that the final seven years of man's existence in this age as we know it, it's a period of time Bible scholars call the tribulation. In fact, the Bible calls it the tribulation. It's going to be a period where God is pouring out judgment upon a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. Jesus said that except those days were shortened, there would be no flesh that would be saved. It would be a time of intense persecution, tribulation, difficulty, anguish, where the judgment of God is poured out. And when you read Revelation chapter 6 through 19, you get the idea that you don't want to be on earth during that time. But the Bible also teaches that God has not appointed his people unto wrath. The wrath that your sin and my sin incurred was placed upon Christ at the cross. He suffered our tribulation. He endured the judgment that my sin earned. And when I gave my life to Christ, my sin was laid upon him completely. And so the Bible teaches that God will be faithful to take out his people prior to him pouring out that judgment upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. We even do that in our world. We don't bomb a country before we pull our ambassadors out. And God will be faithful before he bombs this Christ-rejecting world to pull his people faithfully out. You say, well, where else does it talk about this in Scripture? I mean, this is kind of a sci-fi type of concept. You know, is there any other verses on this? There is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, the Apostle Paul expounds. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. The reference is to death. That is that we're not all going to die. There will be some that do not die. But we shall all be changed, transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That there's a day coming that there'll be the sound of a trumpet. When it's time for God to call us home, it'll be in the twinkling of an eye. I don't know what we'll hear. I don't know what we'll see. But I know that in that moment, one-tenth of a second, we'll be taken up and we'll beat the Lord in the air. Paul expounded further to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. He said this. He said, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. It's the event that we're waiting for as the church. Paul called it to Titus, the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's the thing that we're to hope for with that deepest hope that we can have. But you say, but wait a minute. The question that the disciples asked was, what will be the sign of your coming? How will we know when we're getting close to that time? I mean, we know that it's going to catch us off guard, that it's at an unexpected moment. But nevertheless, there's an answer to the question. So how can we be ready? What is it that we can be watching so that we're not caught off guard for that time to come? And Jesus gave the answer. What was the sign? That was the question. He said back in verse 32, he said this. He said, now learn a parable from the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. You say, what is this parable of the fig tree and what is its significance? What does it mean? There's a rule in Bible study or Bible expounding that's called the law of expositional constancy. And you don't have to remember that and you don't have to write it down, but here's what it means. It means that when you see something used in symbolic form in the scripture, every time you see that, it always means the same thing. In other words, if a dove is symbolic of the Spirit of God in the Bible, like it says that the Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove, then a dove in the Bible always points to and speaks of the Spirit. It doesn't change interpretation or context. So does the fig tree have any kind of a symbolic representation in the Scripture? And the answer is yes. The fig tree was used from Israel's earliest days inheriting the promised land as a symbol of their land and of their presence within that land. When Moses was telling the people the form of the land that they would inherit, in Deuteronomy, he said, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. And soon that concept of the land of figs would be associated with their presence in the land. Twice in 1 Kings and then again in 2 Kings, it says that every man dwelt safely underneath his vine and his fig tree. And so the fig tree became a symbol, a symbolic form of the peaceful presence, listen, of Israel in their land. It's what the fig tree represents. You say, well, I need more verses than that. I hope you can write fast. If not, get the tape. Song of Solomon 2.13. Jeremiah 5.17, Jeremiah 24, the whole chapter, Hosea 2.12, Hosea 9, verse 10, Joel 1.7, Joel 1.12, Joel 2.22, Amos 4.9, Micah 4.4, Nahum 3.12, Habakkuk 3.17, Haggai 2.19, and Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10. All of them share that same context, using the fig as an illustration of, Symbolically speaking of Israel dwelling safely within their land, the promised land that God gave to Abraham. 
I think the most important Old Testament reference to that is in Jeremiah chapter 8. And you should have a finger there or a bookmark there. I want to read you these verses because I think it points directly to what Jesus is saying here. In Jeremiah chapter 8, Jeremiah is indicting the nation for their excessive idolatry. They've turned from God in every way. They've completely forsaken and forgotten Him. Moses told them that had they done that, or if they did that, then the penalty would be that they would lose the land. They would become captives and be taken away from the inheritance that God gave them, the land of Israel. So Jeremiah indicts them with these words. In verse 12 of chapter 8, it says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall, And in the time of their punishment, now, in the New King James, it's punishment. In the King James, it's visitation. And that's the proper word. And that's important. The word means, in the Hebrew language, their visitation or their oversight. Speaks of the day when Jesus would come, when their Messiah would visit them. It says, in the time of their visitation, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. It's a clear word, God saying they're going to perish from off the land, and again, the fig tree being used as the symbol of expression or illustration. Now leave Jeremiah and turn to Mark chapter 11, because I want to show you something. Mark chapter 11. In verse 12. Now the next day when they, this is Jesus and his disciples, had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not yet the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you forever or ever again. And his disciples heard it. So he makes a strange proclamation to a barren fig tree in a season where it wasn't even expected that that tree should have figs upon it. And you start to wonder, well, did Jesus get grumpy when he was hungry? I mean, I know I do a little bit, but I mean, here Jesus curses a fig tree just because it doesn't have figs in the time of figs. What's going on here? Was this just an emotional outburst? Well, look down at verse 20. The day goes on. It says, now in the morning, the next day, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Now Jesus uses that as an opportunity to give education concerning faith and proclamation. But there's more to the story. See, keep your finger right there. Put your finger, I want you to do this, in your Bible. And if you didn't turn there, shame on you because you're going to miss out on the blessing of this exercise. Put your finger on the Bible of the person next to you. Put your finger on verse 20. And trace with your finger down the page, down the column. Now turn the page when you get to the end. Just keep tracing. Keep going through words. 
Keep going. Keep going all the way to the end of chapter 11. Then get to chapter 12 and keep scrolling with your finger. Keep going. Just keep moving your finger down the text all the way through the verses of chapter 12. Keep going all the way to 12. Now, when you get to verse 38 of chapter 12, I want you to stop for a minute. And here's why I had you do that. Because it's the same day. All the space that you just covered with your finger tracing, you're in the same day that Jesus saw with his disciples the withered tree that he had cursed the day before. Same day. Then in verse 38, it said, Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love gatherings in the marketplace, the best seats. This is the speech where Jesus calls them hell-mongering, you know, idolatrous, the, the, the one I was talking about earlier, Matthew chapter 23. Now keep tracing with your finger all the way to chapter 13, verse 1. Same day, same speech. It says, Then, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Do you see? It's the same teaching that he gave in Matthew 24, recorded by Mark. But here's my point. It's the same day that they saw the withered fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before, and now, in his answer to their question, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age, he says, learn a parable of the fig tree. Learn Now, uh, what's going to go on in their mind? What is he talking about when he says, learn a parable of the fig tree? He's pointing them directly to what he had done which would eventually trickle through their understanding back to Jeremiah chapter 8 and all of the other Old Testament references that spoke of the Jews dwelling pleasantly in their land. So what's the point? What's this deal with the fig tree? Well, listen, just like it's said in Jeremiah, just like Jesus insinuated by cursing the fig tree and seeing it dry up by its roots, they perished from off the land. It happened. It wasn't 40 years from the time that Jesus died and rose again that Titus and the Romans came in. They besieged the city. They slaughtered over a million Jews. They took over shop and dispersed them. Later on, Hadrian became the emperor. He, again, raised up another form of persecution. He burned the fields. He made a law that no two Jews could be seen in public talking to one another. He changed the name of Jerusalem to Aelio Capitolina, which is capital of Hadrian. And he changed the name of the land to Philistine country after their enemies, or Palestine, as it became known. And the Jews were completely abolished from that land. They had no homeland there. They were dispersed. They went throughout all the world, and that land ceased to be theirs. And it stayed that way for about 1,800 years. Now, miraculous thing. The Jews kept their national identity. Wherever they went, whatever nation they were a part of, they kept their identity. They didn't assimilate and become Germans in Germany or Russians in Russia or, you know, wherever it else was that they went. They kept and maintained that identity within themselves. And so confusing was that to Christians throughout those generations that they came up with this concept called replacement theology. Well, if Israel has a part to play in the last days and Israel's been out of existence for 1,800 years, then the church must be Israel now. And God has replaced Israel with the church. Problem. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, 
Look at the sun, look at the moon, look at the stars. If those things cease and stop, then the seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel, will stop being a nation before me forever. I'm not done with them. They kept their identity. Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 give a prophecy that in the last days, God is going to bring his people, the Jews, back into their homeland. In 1894, there was a man named Alfred Dreyfus. And he was put on trial in France for selling French military secrets to the Germans. But it was a sham trial. He was proved innocent, but they condemned him as guilty regardless. There were riots in the streets of Paris and the people shouted and they said, death to the Jews, death to the Jews. And it caught wind and there was a rise of anti-Semitism in those days. There was a Jewish reporter named Theodore Herzl and he was covering the story And he woke up and he realized something. He said, if we, the Jews, don't have a homeland, we have no future, no hope, no existence. And so in 1897, he called together a council of prominent Jewish leaders in Basel, Switzerland. And they came up with a plan. They said, we've got to move back to Palestine, to that land, and just live there. And so they did. They began to move back in there, buy parcels of land. They began to drain the swamps and the malaria-infested wasteland that it had become being uninhabited for all of that time. The movement caught steam. More families joined in. People were moving back to that land. The language of Hebrew was returned to the people. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9 says, Then will I turn to the people a pure language that they might all call upon me with one accord. The persecution intensified. It was persistent. World War II came around. Adolf Hitler slaughtered over 6 million Jews in the Holocaust. And it caused the nations of the world to vote. And on May 14, 1948, they voted. Should there be a nation of Israel, a state of Israel, in their former lands? And by one vote, the motion was accepted. And the Jews became a nation, Israel became a nation again, the first time in human history that a dead nation with a dead language became a nation again and was brought back into existence. Why? Because God said it's going to happen. What did Jesus say? He said, when you see the fig tree blossom, know that it is near, even at the doors. The most biblically significant thing that has happened since the day of Pentecost has happened in our lifetime or just before it. And that is the reestablishment of Israel as a nation in the Middle East. God said it's going to happen. And it's going to happen in the last days. And Jesus said, when you see these things, know that it's near. But then Jesus took it one step further. Because he said, the generation that sees these things will by no means perish until all things are fulfilled. That's a bold statement. Now, he wasn't talking to the generation of people right in front of him because they've come and gone and those things haven't been fulfilled. He was talking to the generation that would see the blossoming of the fig tree. That's us. That's a bold declaration. But it's what Jesus said. And so we live in incredibly significant times. And it boils down to the fact that his coming is near. It's at The doors. Now, otherwise, Jesus said it would be like it was in the days of Noah. Life as usual. 
And he said it would come at an unexpected time. And here's the point. Here's what it all comes down to. Bottom line of connecting the dots of doing our homework. It's this. It's that what we're looking for, what comes next, if you would, on God's timetable is the rapture of the church. We know that all the world is heading in a direction, and we know what that direction is because the Bible tells us. There's going to be one world ruler. There's going to be one world government, one economic system. All of that is going to happen because God said it's going to happen, but before it happens, the rapture will come. So where are we in this? I, I, I have a, a short little video clip. It's about 49 seconds or so that uh, you're going to see, and, and I just want you to just hear. It's a conglomeration of clips, but here goes. In creating the kind of uh, uh, world order that I think all of us would like to see. And one of the ways it will drive the change is through global governance. I think the new world order is emerging. This is a hoax and a scam which is designed to transfer wealth and power from the private sector to the government sector and from the government of the United States to a world government. And those people who have been yelling, oh, the UN's going to take over global conspiracy theorists, they they've been crazy, but now they they're right. And who got the money? Hundreds and hundreds of banks, any bank or that has uh, access to the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve's discount. Tell us who they are. No. You know, financial terrorism. They have the ability to tweak the knob. I am proposing that the Federal Reserve be granted new authority. <laughs> Here's the point. The point is that the things are happening. We're watching things unfold exactly according to the way that the Scripture said that they would fold long before these things happen. Because God says, I declare the end from the beginning. And as we look at what the Bible says about the end, and we compare it to our world today, it should give us the clue that we're living in extremely significant times. I said to you earlier that Satan uses human government as his means of accomplishing his will, his agenda, his goal. And he does that primarily in three different ways as we look at it in Scripture. Number one is that he does it through innovation. That was the Tower of Babel. This was the new thing. We're going to build a tower that reaches to heaven. And the people became so infatuated with the idea of moving forward that they were unified in their purpose of rebelling against God. That is, that they didn't need God anymore. The second way that he does it is through opulence. We saw that through Nebuchadnezzar and the statue of gold. There's so much wealth and there's so much opulence that there's no more hunger for God because all the needs are met through earthly and, 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 and carnal things. And then the third way that he does it is through controlled chaos. And that is that he, per, he creates problems according to prescribed solutions. In other words, we know what he wants to do. And so he knows how to work things and pull strings so that world problems can only be solved by implementing the things that he wants. And that's what we see coming. When we look at things economically, when we look at things politically, I mean, nothing makes sense. When you look at the money that's being printed and spent and how no account for any of it, when you look at the chaos that takes place politically and the, the unrest that happens throughout the world destabilizing governments, it's all headed in the direction that God said it would go. So where do we finish this? This is where we wrap things up. And that is with part three of our study, and that's footwork. What does this mean to us? So far, we've had a great Bible study, and we've looked at some insights, we've heard words of Jesus, we've reflected on our days, we've done all of that, but what does it mean to us? 
What do we take with us away from here as we go? How does it change my life? Is this just knowledge that tickles my intellect? Or does this in some way affect the direction that my feet are taking me and the way I live my life? A couple things to consider on this. And these things are the most important part of our study tonight. What do we do in light of these things? Number one, keep your eyes on the Word. Keep your eyes on the Word of God. Jesus said that the last times would be filled with false Christs, false messiahs, false prophets, and false teachings. He said it over and over again. The Apostle Paul said that the deception that was coming was going to be so strong that the only thing that would keep someone from being swayed by it is if they were in love with the truth. He said that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said, because they did not receive the love of the truth, Their eyes were blinded and they were swept away. And so what is the truth? The truth is the word of God. There are some people I know that have incredible lidar. You can't lie to them and if you do, they know it immediately. But the lie that's coming on this earth is so subtle and so strong that no amount of lidar is ever going to be able to pick up on it. And the only defense that you have against it is to know your Bible. You must know and love the truth. And I cannot say it enough. It's the most important thing you have is your Bible. And listen, we have no excuse. Because in the internet age, you can get the absolute best information, Bible studies, sermons, teachings, anything you need. You can get it at the drop of a dime. You can be filling yourself with the Word of God consistently and constantly. Your time in the car, your downtime, coming to church. We have no excuse for it. That's why we teach the Bible here at this church. Line upon line, precept by precept, chapter by chapter, book by book. And the reason that we do that is because it's the only way that you can have the full counsel of God's word. And here's our objective, our goal, why we do this. It's not so that you can just know. It's so that you can know how to harvest for yourself. See, the goal of Bible teaching, what I'm doing right now, is not that I climb up an apple tree, pick apples, and throw them down to you so that you down below, the people that can't get up the tree, just get something to eat. That's not the goal. Here's the goal. It's to build a ladder so that you can climb up the tree and pick the apples for yourself. And that is so essential. If you're not in the Word of God, if you're not studying the Word of God, then you are vulnerable to deception. Bankers that have to pull out counterfeit money do not study counterfeit money. They study real money. They become so familiar with how it feels, how it looks, the type of paper that it's printed on, the identifiable markers that make it legitimate, that once a a, a fake comes in, they recognize it immediately. But if you don't know your Bible, then when the spiritual counterfeit comes, and it says Jesus, and it says church, and it carries a cross, and it has a bumper sticker, and it says all the right words... But Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. You'll see it from what's in the heart. And you're not going to pick up on the subtle deception if you don't know your Bible. So imperative. Keep your eyes in the Word. If I could make myself cry right now, I'd say it with tears. The Word of God is of utmost importance in these days. Every Christian needs to be well-versed in the Scripture. I want to tell you something. I'm not smarter than any one of you. I'm not. I'm, I'm average. And God got a hold of me, and I got into a church where I was taught to study the Bible for myself. You can do that too. Any one of you can know your Bible, know the truth. You must love the truth. 
In these days that we live in, it is so critical. You can't be deceived if you love the truth. Number two is keep your hand on the plow. This is important. I know it's getting late, but please tune in. We're wrapping up. We're winding. The plane is coming in for a descent. Landing gear is is coming down. The seatbelt light is on, you know. Keep your feet, I'm sorry, keep your hand on the plow. There is a danger in knowing these things that we're talking about here tonight. And here's the danger. I call it spiritual senioritis. You remember that? Remember when you were a senior in high school and you knew you were getting out? How much work did you do? Almost none, right? You, were, you put it on autopilot and you said, man, I know I'm getting out of here. I know that time is almost up. And so therefore, it's not essential for me to really do that much. You cannot do that spiritually. If you allow a study of prophecy or a knowledge of what's coming to do that to you, then you're completely cutting off your ability to bear fruit and fulfill the purpose for which God put you on the earth at this time of world history. If you kept reading, and I hope that you do, and you continue reading what Jesus said to the church, you're going to come to that parable of the talents. And it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a long journey, and he delivers his goods to his servants. To one he gives five talents, to one he gives two, and to another he gives one. And then he goes away for a long time. That's what it says in verse 19 of chapter 25. A long time. But when he comes and settles accounts with those servants, he says, What did you do with what I gave you? And the more that he's given you, the more you should be doing. It's a do faith that we're in. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, it says this. It says that the sons of Issachar were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Do you see that? It's not to know what Israel ought to know, but to know what Israel ought to do. An understanding of the times is in order so that we might understand the importance of the days that we live in, that we might do the things that he has given us to do. God has given you, every one of you, talents. Now, talent in the Bible means a a measurement of money. But talent in our language means a talent. Or it could mean money. But God has given every single one of us resources, supernatural, spiritual gifts, wisdom, understanding, knowledge of the Bible, a sphere of influence. He's given all of us something. And he expects us to make an impact for our world with the resources that we have for his name. I'm not preaching works. It doesn't save you. It doesn't earn you brownie points. It's what he's given us to do. We're to occupy until he comes. And we must keep our hand on the plow. And the clock tower, the thing that tells us what time it is and how close we are, is not so that we'll coast and go on autopilot, but rather it's that we might stir up our motivation and that we might go after the things of God with everything we have in these last days. Oftentimes I think of my life like this. How many of you in here, and you don't have to raise your hands, have or at one point had student loan debt? A lot. In fact, my wife still has student. You know, we know what that's like. But here, here's why I bring that up. Because I try, and I say try so I don't sound super spiritual. I try to live my life like I have a whole bunch of student loan debt to pay back to God. And here's what I mean. God has done so much in teaching me certain things and putting me in places where I could learn certain things and giving me gifts to do certain things. And he, God, has invested in me in ways that I can't even imagine. And sometimes I think, well, is he getting the return on that investment 
that he should, that he deserves. Every one of us here has student loan debt in that context. God has invested in your life. If nothing else, he shed the blood of his son to save your soul. Now, he doesn't say, so that you'll go to work for me. I don't want to misrepresent God in that light. But listen, he's invested in us so that we might invest what he's given to us back into his kingdom and that it might be furthered and expanded. And it's so important in these days that we keep our hand on the plow. And if you don't know what God's given you, what he's called you to do, just get involved somewhere and figure it out along the way. So important. And then number three, finally, keep your feet on the ground. Keep your feet on the ground. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended, and and this is a short point, don't worry. It says that he ascended. They followed him out as far as the Mount of Olives. He ascended, and it says that they were all watching him ascend. All of the disciples just watched Jesus as he ascended and disappeared in the clouds. And then they were standing here like this. And an angel showed up and said, hey, guys, this same Jesus whom just ascended out of your presence, he's coming back. But why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? There's work to do. And sometimes we get so consumed with prophecy that we just get our head in the clouds. We're looking up constantly to heaven and every little thing. Listen, keep your feet on the ground. God gives us a clock tower. What would it be like for you if you went to your job and all you did all day was stare at the clock? I know some of you do that. Don't, don't do that, you know. <laughs> but what would what it would mean, first of all, you're completely unproductive. You're doing nothing. You're doing absolutely nothing. And furthermore, what is your message to everyone else? Hey, workday's almost done. Workday's almost done. Workday's almost done. Not a good thing to do. Don't do that at work. Don't do that for God. It's not the kind of thing where we get so consumed with what we're seeing happening that that's all we are. We're called, we're commissioned, so keep your feet on the ground and stay sober. What's the conclusion of all this? The reason why we do it? So that we can keep things in perspective. Ask yourself the question, what did you do with the dash? The dash is that little thing on your tombstone between the year that you were born and the year that you died, and it represents the whole time span of your life. What did you do with it? It's all you get. What are you doing with it? Are you living with eternity's values in view? Or are you living to consume it upon yourself and make the most for yourself here and now that you possibly can? It's only one life till soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. The story is told of a small sparrow who was standing on the Atlantic coast, right next to the Atlantic Ocean. And he slurped a beak full of water into his beak. And he began to hop west. And he hopped through the east coast states, and over the Appalachian Mountains, and across the Mississippi, and through the plains, and over the Rockies, and through the desert, and into California. And he hopped all the way to the Pacific Ocean, and then he spit that drop of water into the Pacific Ocean. Then he hopped back through California, the desert, the Rockies, the Plains, the Mississippi, the Appalachians, East Coast states, back to the Atlantic coast, and he took another beak full of water. And then he hopped back. You get the idea. Over the Appalachians, through the Plains, (laughs) over the Rockies, through the desert, California, to the Pacific coast, and he spit that second beak full of water into the Pacific ocean. Then he went back. Listen. By the time that sparrow empties the entire Atlantic Ocean into 
the Pacific Ocean, the first morning of the first day of eternity will have passed. We're eternal. Our lives here on this world count towards what we will be, enjoy, experience eternally. So what are you doing with it? And that's the reason why we look at these things. May God give us wisdom as we live in these most exciting, most challenging times. He says, I've set before you an open door and no man can close it. And so, Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, and we thank you for the excitement of who you are, what you've ordained, what you've given to each one of us. We make it our prayer, Lord, at the close of this lengthy Bible study that you would set our feet in the right direction, that you would adjust our perspective, that you'd challenge our motivation, and you'd reset our goals. Lord, many of us have been living for this world and its pleasures and its cares, and we've given no regard to you, little regard to you. Some of us, Lord, have gone backslidden. So hopeless, Lord, that the only thing left for us is if you would return. We've lost all sight of any talent or gift or purpose that we might have. We ask that tonight would be a night that that would change. Some here tonight, Lord, perhaps haven't yet even made that decision that their name would be written in your book. I pray that tonight their ears would have heard something of your spirit. And that a shred of hope might be birthed in them that you might yet have a plan, a purpose for them too. And so, Father, we ask that you would do what your spirit has ordained through this study in this time that it wouldn't be a waste for nothing, but that it would change us, change our mind and change our hearts. Two minutes after the rapture of the church happens, there will be a spiritual darkness. Could you turn that down a little bit for a sec? Spiritual darkness so thick that it will be felt. And the restraint of wickedness will be completely removed and this world will spiral into a, a literal hell. As soon as the rapture happens, you don't want to be left behind. And the Bible tells us that you were made in God's image. That God made you with an eternal soul. It's got an unlimited capacity to experience His goodness. An unlimited capacity needs an unlimited source. And only God can fill what He's made you to be. And He wants you to be it. And God loves you so much that He sent His Son to die on a cross for your sins so that you wouldn't have to be separated from Him for all of eternity, but that your sins could be put away and you could be brought back into a relationship with Him. Before I close, I just want to give you an opportunity. You might be here tonight and you might be backslidden. You're far from Christ and you need to return. Maybe you don't know Christ and you need to call on Him as your Savior. And I want to give you that opportunity. It's, it's, a, it's a coming forward to Him and saying, God... I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need your cross. I need your blood and the sacrifice that you gave me for. If there's anyone here, you just want to accept Christ. We're going to give you that opportunity. Just lift up your hand and acknowledge Christ. If you need to repent and give, give your life back to him, just lift up your hand and say, I need Jesus to come back into my life. This is the time when you make those decisions and you do those things. This is the time where you say, God, I need to break free from this life I've been living apart from you, and I need to return. Is there anyone here? I see a few hands. Is there anyone else? That you? This is your day. You say, I need Jesus in my life. Father, I pray for those people that tonight have either called upon you 
for salvation or to turn back to you in repentance. And I pray, Lord, that you would seal them, that you'd find them where they are, and that you would finish your work that you've begun. We thank you for this time. Bless your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you receive-